When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, and now we get to the the part of this that I've been so excited for. What we're going to do, Tyler and Lex, is we are going to look into the past of Jonnet and Way. And these stories are, are going to teach us important things about each other. But I do here have this deck of luminaries yes, yes. Um, that we're going to pull from. Tyler, I know I sent you emails about this yes. and, and kind of our exploration of the space here. We are trying to find the reasons that Jonnet wants to do the right thing. The, the reasons that Jonnet is like walking such a hard path. And we don't need to land firmly on that today, but what we do need to do is collect moments from Jonnet's path that are going to show way who Jonnet is and in a certain way show Jonnet who Jonnet is. So I'm going to draw two luminaries here. One will be one that will sort of set the scene for a story from Jonnet's past, and one will be one that sets the scene for a story from Way's past. And I'll allow you to, to choose, oh, what you would like to define here. And I pulled the island and the loom. I Again, I'm at a stage where I cannot believe the the relevance of the ones that I have pulled, but I'm just going to pull up my luminary explanations so I can make sure that my interpretation of these is spot on. Awesome. The themes of the loom represent toil, obligation, and sacrifice. And the themes of the island are... Imprisonment, doom, and the cursed sea. Mm. I'll, I'll leave it up to you. Whatever, whatever scene you would like to set, just tell us which luminary you're going to be using, and uh, we'll start from there. I have something for Jonnet that I think is has something to do with the island and the fight with Calivar. Ooh, Tyler, describe for us this island kind of forming underneath the feet of Jonnet and Teacher Way. I feel like I have to see what I've been seeing. And then we start to like have these like light lines start to be drawn around Jonnet. And I feel like if you were to like cut to a wide between the two, between Teacher Way and Jonnet, Jonnet's line 
of like drawn reality stops exactly halfway between where the two of them are standing. It was like you have two worlds that we can like see. And so behind him, we start to see sand. We start to see the shore, the 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 grass, the the trees of this island. And then we notice that we are on an island. And then within that, we start to see like added details get drawn in. So we start to see sand with like imprints of bodies being like falling and like the footsteps of people in like locked in sword combat. Um, And so we're getting these, the information of the landscape. And then on top of that, we start to see and hear like swords clashing, like grunts and all this. And then we see like, like Oromar and Calavar with like locked in. And then right behind Jonnet, I feel like is the, I need a, I need a, uh, one of Calavar's council. Yeah. Okay. Folks, uh, we have reached a moment where uh, Tyler is going to need to know which person on Calavar's council Jonnet killed. Yeah. So, uh, Nathan, Johnny, Liz, I'm going to need one detail about this person. And here's the thing. They can suck. <laughs> but they're not a joke. Mm. I want to I want to make that one rule. This person sucks, but they're not a joke. Do we know who was the star watcher before Jonet kind of took the role? We do not. In a mixture of, I, I would like to suggest that they were previously the Star Watcher and in a similar fashion to Kelevar being really handy with those like single shot derringers, this previous Star Watcher was using their kind of keen sight, regular sight, they don't have the third eye, uh, to be a terrifying dead shot. Mm. That creates a very cool mental picture that I will hopefully get to play with. <laughs> Keep going, Liz. I like the idea of this person. So, so much of star watching is like accurate measurements. For some reason, their hands are the reason they were able to navigate was so well was because like the distance between their fingers, like the pointer finger and the thumb was like a perfect representation of Oromar's scale, the scale of his map. So they could just like go like L here, L here. And just have this in internal innate knowledge of uh, that's cool perfect proportion. Liz, I would love to layer on top of that a step further and state that on their hands, on the back of their hands, there are like star maps and calculations built in. Like th- there is a an angular compass. Like mm-hmm. on one hand, it's just like yeah, ninety degrees, forty five degrees, whatever. Like they can hold up their hand perfectly towards the night sky or the day sky it's almost like they have a sextant built into their hand from these tattoos so because of that like you would think that they would be reedy or thin but i think they have like huge hands huge like strong but also very dexterous hands i think that they are the perfect scale the hands and everything for this map because they have i think they've been the star watcher for multiple ships and kind of each mm-hmm. time they muscle their way into the role, mm-hmm. they redraw the maps or perhaps have their ah. own that they bring so that it's like, hey, that's it. They bring their own map. So they're like, hey, look, 
this Star Watcher is okay, but look at, I have like a much more extensive map. Look at all these, look at all these locations that you don't have on your map. You make me Star Watcher, I can get you there. Mm-hmm. One of the things, one of the things that we have established is that when you elect a captain, you are more or less electing their maps. So I like the idea, especially because this is a person who essentially goes in and goes, my vision, my measurements are more important than the captains, that Oromar is like kind of the first stone wall they've come against. So we can see the tattoos that are on their hands have been redone Mm. somehow. They came in, they tried to institute their maps. Oromar rejected that Mm -hmm. in favor of his own. And therefore, this person had to like reconfigure the entire life of his hands, which explains why he was so keen to mutiny. Mm. (laughs) So, I mean, I'm imagining that this person is, yeah, like an, an amazing shot. And so I feel like within the battle of the island, like it feels like very close quarters, like in your face, like swords, magic, except for Jonnet. I feel like Jonnet, for whatever reason, he started off far removed from like his opponent. And in this dream, the, the pocket space, we start to see, he starts to envision like the debris of the, of the fight. And then that's sort of in the distance. And then right next to Jonnet, we start to see bullet holes in the sand, bullet holes in the sand that are, are sort of manifesting themselves. And Jonnet is like realizing that he is about to relive this memory. And so he looks back into the distance and up along like the tree line, we see the glint of a rifle. And so Jonnet on the battle of the, uh, the island, Jonnet had to maneuver forward like with cover as this essentially like a, a marksman sniper is trying to pick him off. And I feel like that that was like one of the first times that he used his eye, whether he knew it or not, to sort of get a sense of where this bullet was going to be and be anywhere but that. And it was frantic mm-hmm. and it was like hellish, but it was like the first instance of John getting that divine light in battle. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's the first time that your life was really on the line. Like, mm-hmm. you you had spent time aboard the Uhuru, and you had traveled, like, alone before you, you know, snuck aboard and, and joined the crew. But here, on this island, you are thrown into a life-or-death situation, largely by your own initiative. Like, we know that you snuck aboard whatever ship or vessel was lowered onto this island for the landing party, and you kind of watched this unfold and then inserted yourself in the middle of this danger. And there, I think we, like, join Jonnet, like, we can see, you know, the absence of people, but the signs of their presence— the footsteps swishing around in the sand, the sound of metal on metal as blades clank against each other, the explosion of pistols and and the fire and, and sound echoing in the air. And the only thing that we can see that is really concrete is Jonnet terrified, huddled behind a rock, 
breathing. Mm. And a thing that I think I'll layer onto this, when you were falling into the dream space, the sound of the world around you kind of faded away. And a thing that became more prominent than anything else is the sound of Jonnet's heart and the sound of his breathing. It is not unlike the meditative state that Jonnet fell into when he and Traveler Quan were entering this metaphysical state to face the mariner in Bujanith. And because Jonnet has a familiarity with that rhythm, and that training, he fell into this sense of his own rhythm. And now you are feeling the rhythm of the intensity of this moment. Back when Jonnet's breathing was heavy because he has been running, his heart is breathing fast because he is terrified. And there is an explosion of like this jagged rock behind his head as the sniper took aim at the fauxhawk that, yeah. that Jonnet has sticking up above his headband. And he has to duck and in ducking, in curling into himself, the eye opens. I think for the second or third time in Jonnet's life. But this time, it is because it is, it is reacting to the danger of the world around him. Jonnet's labored breathing, I feel like it's, it's like someone trying to play it's like some a drummer trying to play at like 105 beats per minute but they fall in and out of time not on purpose so there's mm -hmm. no intentional swing but it's like you can hear that there should be some kind of like set to it but it's it's labored and so we get this we see a slightly younger jonnet and then we pull back and we see over the shoulder of our current day jonnet and he looks back at way and with eyes that are really just like completely asking, like, is this what you want me to relive? Way sees this expression, but like doesn't react to it because they're like really fascinated with what's going on, almost in a kind of like sadistically thrilled way. Mm. You know, getting to see this part of your memory, which is not something that uh, Way had previously known about Jonnet, is like like a movie to them. You know. Mm. Yeah, way this is a this is a goddamn thriller yeah, right yeah. now because there you somebody who is more familiar with interpreting information from your eye and now like your eye and your knowledge of interpreting the things that your eye can connect you to has just touched Jonnet. Yeah. So there is a thrill of being able to see through a seer's eye that is not blind. Yeah. And because you have this mastery of interpretation, you can see and understand things that Jonnet yeah. in the moment could not and maybe even now mm -hmm. cannot. As you look around, one thing that you know is the place that they are in, the, the ground that they are standing mm -hmm. on, is almost out of phase with reality. Mm. It's not unlike your pocket space, mm -hmm. in a way. It is a place that exists and does not exist. A place that should not be beheld. The closer you look at details like rocks and sand, the more they blur and swirl and become indistinct, almost as though you are looking at a painting. 
And the picture itself of this scene is magnificent. As Jonnet's eye opens in this scene, a halo spreads out from around him. Whether or not it could actually be seen in this moment in the physical world almost doesn't matter. Because you are in the dream space, mm-hmm. you are seeing the, the, the lines of reality and you are seeing the shots, the potential shots that this crew member who, let's make up a name for this person. I was going uh, to right suggest that their name is Polaris, with it being Polaris. Oh mm. yes. Okay, I'm just gonna write that note for myself so I don't forget this in a couple weeks and be very mad at myself. Polaris is a terrifying name, and also the name of a shopping mall in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> mm. <laughs> a frightening shopping mall. Polaris Mall, what? your yeah. guiding star. <laughs> mm. I mean. It, that's probably it, right? That's probably it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we can see the possible shots of Polaris and see the abject horror of this moment because Jonnet, for one of the first times in his life, is seeing the possibilities that reality has in store for him. And many of those are his death. He is seeing himself spring out from behind this rock and get shot in a dozen different ways. Jonnet is like right now curled up, balled up, being ha- having to face mortality at the age of 15. Jonnet, you have faced grave danger. And it seems like this is a memory that you wanted to repress. So this must even feel new to you, needing to relive this. Am I right? I feel like the the wonder in Jonnet's voice be- from before is very much faded. And it's like, yeah, I didn't want to live this again. I didn't want to remember this. Is there a particular reason you didn't want to remember this? Is it maybe because of how it ends? And I, th- I think the look that he gives you is like, come on, you know. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to remember the first time they took a life. It's James, your game master, and for real, this time I'm serious about it, this is the generic mid-roll. Those other generic mid-rolls, they weren't generic, but now they are. Uh, Just so everybody knows, I'm doing generic mid-rolls because I recently had a baby, and taking care of a newborn does not leave me with time to do most of my regular podcast duties. Obviously, Skyjax is going to continue posting. I'm just not going to be making bespoke mid-roll announcements for it. With that said, first, I want to thank Lex, the Lexicon artist, for joining us as a guest for this arc. And I want to let everyone listening know that Lex is currently touring. 
So if you have enjoyed their performances here on the show and you're also in a position where you think you can go out and see shows safely, I highly recommend showing up to Lex's tour. They're going from the East Coast through the Midwest, up and down the country throughout March and April. And you can get tickets for a performance in your area by heading to thelexiconartist.com or following the link in our show notes. I know not everybody's COVID safety protocols allows them to go out and see concerts. But if yours do, there's nothing better than supporting an artist like Lex uh, in a very difficult time. And if you can't make it to one of the tour dates, check out Lex's website anyway and listen to their music. It's really great. In addition to our regular game, for this arc, we're playing Starcrossed, the two-player Forbidden Romance RPG. Starcrossed was designed by my dear friend and former network member, Alex Roberts and is published by Bully Pulpit Games. You can pick up your own copy of Starcrossed by following the link in our show notes. A big thank you to all the cast and crew who are involved in producing the music for this arc. That is not just our guest for the arc, Lex the Lexicon artist, but it's also Arnie Parrott, our house musician, Tyler Davis, who you're going to be hearing later on, James Mendez Hodes, who wrote some lyrics for one of the songs that will be appearing much later on in the arc, and of course, Casey Tony, our editor, for choosing when and where it appears in the show. And also a huge thank you to Tracy Barnett, who assisted Casey Tony on the editing for this arc. As always, one of the biggest thank yous goes to our Patreon patrons who made everything you're listening to possible by supporting the show. Let's thank them right now. Thanks to everyone who supports us already and everyone who's going to support us in the future. Also, quick update on that short story that I was talking about last week. Uh... Finished revising it, haven't recorded it yet uh, because of the baby, but I really do hope to have it for you next week. Um, it'll be worth the wait, I promise. Now, with all of that out of the way, let's get back in the sky. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Long before the stars fell, in a village that would one day be lost to loom, lived a young woman of rare grace and beauty. In her fingers, she carried the subtlety of breath. In her eyes, she held cleverness like the edge of a knife. And when she ran, it was like the wind flowing over waves of grass. The love in her heart was equal to her own loveliness. Everyone who saw her felt a longing for the union's harmony, and she ached to find wholeness in that embrace. It was tradition that young hearts seeking the union's light weave and dye a cord to wear in their hair. A lover who could cut it would be worthy to tie a knot between the ends and bind their souls in marriage. She spent her youth dreaming of her cord and her adolescence preparing it. She raised a lamb to have fleece as soft as whispers and as pure as truth. She tended roses with so much care that they never grew thorns, and their petals held more red than blood. She spun and worked a loom until her fingers had skill to match their grace. And 
As she did all these things, she whispered prayers to the union, that she would find a love as true as that which she knew she could give. She poured her years into her weaving, and when the dye was set on those elegant tangles, she had made a perfect thing, red as roses, soft as whispers, and clever as grace. It shone so brightly that it could be seen even under the light of the faintest star. It nestled into her curls with the same effortless charm she could use to command a room. Folk from every village within a swallow's flight of Lostaloon came to ask her hand. She spent her youth tasting the sweetest words and stepping to dear and tender dances. She welcomed countless lovers, hoping to find one worthy to tie her knot. But try as they might, not a single one was able to sever what she had woven. When she was young, she was patient. She had the world seeking her knot, and there was joy in the tangle. As she grew older, her patience wore. She watched countless cords cut and knotted, but hers was as strong as the day she had finished weaving it. More than once, she found a lover that she thought she might like to be wed to, and each time they were undermined by the cord. Their hands strong, their knives sharp, but their hearts, according to the cord at least, were unworthy, and so it refused to break. After so many failed attempts, the girl grew tired of tradition, but the strength of her cord only reinforced it. Seeing firsthand that the cord refused to break, that the tradition held power and magic, there was not a soul within a swallow's flight of Lost Loom that would dare defy it. Eventually, she tried wearing at the fibers with her own knife, wearing a false cord that would cut with ease, and even casting her true cord to the winds. Each time, her cord returned to her curls, brilliant and unmarked. It was the union's will. Lovers who failed to cut her cord went on to tie their own knots, but took pity. They built her a cottage on a grassy hill with a beautiful peach tree standing beside it. The gesture was full of love, but not the kind the woman sought. She lived her days in gratitude, but had to bite bitter yearning as she carried her unfrayed cord to her final day. When she died, she was buried under the peach tree, delivered to the soil of Sphere by fond friends. They buried her cord, still strong, ever unbroken, beneath the boards of her cottage, in the hopes that the depthless love of the friend they knew might linger and make the cottage a warmer home for whomever came to live there next. It is not known whether it was the misguided kindness of her friends, the woman's own unsatisfied longing, or the cruel and simple sting of a lumen's light, but her love did linger, and with it, her soul. With death, she tried to move with the river and shed the sorrows of life with the burden of bones. But she found herself anchored, held fast by that flawless cord, the one she had come to see as cursed, so bound to an untouchable, perfect dream of the union's love that it denied her the joys of an imperfect one that she could hold. Her bitterness bloomed into hatred, she made a covenant with the Union, only to wither in yearning, while it showered blessings upon folk who did not hold a fraction of her virtue. Even in death it held her, 
still binding her to the fancied dream of her youth and denying peace. Her cottage, owned by the village that loved her, was gifted to a young couple that had freshly tied a knot. Her spirit could feel them winding their wretched strings, humming with sweetness about her prison. She turned upon them with wrath. If the Union saw fit to betray her, to take her life and her death, then she would take from it. In life she had seen many taste the sweetness of love only to abandon the Union in order to slake the rake's thirst. She saw this even with those blessed with a tied knot. She vowed to turn her loveliness against the lovers who entered her home, to shatter one of the Union's bonds. She visited the couple in their dreams, the place where the world of living and dead mingle in stillness. She showered each with the honeyed words that she wrote for the love that she never found. She offered them tender touches with hands polished by questing and wanting. She loved them in ways they could never love each other. Her dreams were free of the burdens of the waking world and the flaws that true bodies carry. When they woke, they could not remember her face, just that they missed how she loved them. Each dawn brought a life and a love that could never be as sweet as what they found in their dreams. Slowly, the humming strings of their bond fell slack. With it, the tie of their knot slacked and eventually broke. The couple left the cottage separately. The ghost found an icy pleasure in her revenge. But no freedom. She was still bound to her cord and under the Union's thrall. The first couple was followed by another who were similarly undone. That turned into a string of young lovers who moved to the cottage to start their lives only to grow apart after being haunted in their dreams. Even the strings of young lovers who had not tied any knot and only sought shelter for sharing venal trysts were torn apart by the ghost. She set her wrath against any who dared approach the cottage, or taste the shade and fruit of its tree. Eventually, the village came to know that the cottage was cursed, that all love that passed through its door was doomed to wilt and die. Only the foolish and desperate tried to make their lives there. Over the centuries, the ghost's rage waxed and waned. She did not truly desire the destruction of love, even in her darkest moments. But the terrible thrumming of love was impossible to ignore. The strings of a bond would wind their way around her home and thrum until all she could do was perceive a sweetness that she could never touch. Eventually, she had to strike, to pull and twist those retching threads until they fell silent for that was the closest she ever felt to death. This continued until the stars fell and after. The cottage stood against time, stones, mortar, thatch, and boards as fresh as when they were first laid. The peach tree, too, continued to bloom and fruit with flawless sweetness, even as others fell fallow, all a tempting bait for the trap waiting within. This was until Park and Lucia found a home in the cottage. 
park was a beauty, with elegant locks that shimmered like silk, broad shoulders, and a smooth and gentle voice that boomed brightly when he laughed. Lucia was a force. Sharp eyes, strong hands, and a wit that could bring any soul to laughter, but especially Park. The two were not from Lastalum, finding the village after fleeing the horrors of drowned sailors sieging a shrinking coast. Still, they were warned the cottage was cursed, told of all the loves that had died within its walls, cautioned that if they valued their love, they should move on and find a home elsewhere. But there were no other homes in Lastalum, and Park and Lucia were poor and weary. Their journey was too long already when they found one another on the road. They had no other place to travel, and their dwindling purses could take them no further. If they could not find a home here, they would never find it. So they moved their few possessions into the little cottage. The neighbors sighed, sad to see such kind and charming folks fated to lose one another. The ghost felt their strings even before they wound themselves over the walls of her home. The threads that bound these two were thick with promises, taut with sincerity, singing with devotion. The only other thing that had been so perfect was her own cord. To break this love might even shatter the union itself. It was a love made for her. Park and Lucia drifted in weary relief. Although their wandering had come to an end, their days were still full of toil. Park went to the market every day, looking for odd jobs. Lostalume had welcomed many in recent years, and all folk struggled for place. When he did find work, the labor wore him to the bone. Lucia gathered and trapped near the wood and sold or used what little she could find searching the land. She was daunted by rolling winters that struck often and always lasted more than a week. The lovers returned to the cottage, finding solace in one another's arms and speaking of warmer days. Park laughed, listening to Lucia's wry observations, and Lucia danced to the music that lived in Park's pulse. This love and the fruit of the peach tree, which no one else dared taste, kept them strong enough to face each following day. The ghost watched, shaping bitter plans. Despite the strength of their bond, the cruelty of the world made it vulnerable. Love takes patience, understanding, and tenderness. Labor makes all those things short. She knew she could build each a dream sweeter than waking love. Park was not a wit in words, but his limbs were brilliant. In his hidden heart, the world allowed him to be truly free and merry. So the ghost brought him dreams of revels. She spun him vast banquets, thriving festivals, and grand balls. In each, his bright spirit shone true, sparkling with mirth, laced into song and dance. He saved many dances for Lucia in his dreams. 
And there, the ghost set her plans. In Park's dreams, Lucia moved with far more grace than she possessed in the waking world. The ghost had spent her life cultivating grace and spent more than many lifetimes perfecting it. Her steps were a far better match for his than Lucia's could be even in his dreams. She planned to slowly approach Park, stepping into his dances until she had replaced his fantasies for his bride with herself. To her surprise, Park called her to the fore far before she had planned to strike. It was a dream set on a beach in the glow of a bonfire, further lit by a bright moon and a sky full of dancing color. His eyes found hers across the flame, and he called to her. She tried to retreat so that she could further bide her time, but he sailed over the flames with magnificent flair and offered her a hand. Lit by the fire and color of the dream she had crafted for him, the ghost found that she could not refuse. Or, if she could, she did not want to. Together, the ghost and Park lost themselves, gliding across the sand. They stepped to match the music and soon broke free from even that. In each other's arms, they gave form to joy. Eventually, the dream shifted as dreams do, and Park found himself in the arms of Lucia again. But he returned to the ghost many times before morning. Over months, Park and the ghost fell into hundreds of steps and made magnificent music to match. The heart of any dance lives in the meeting of two souls. In his dreams, Park had the freedom to dance, but with the ghost, he finally had a partner to live it true. Through their dances, the ghost came to know Park. He was more than good looks and grace. His skill in matching steps was wrought from an attentive care for others. The searching for partners that had led his hand to hers over the fire was based in the true joy he found in sharing warm feelings and good fortunes. Through all the time spent in his arms, she had shared much with Park, and he had held it all so tenderly. Lucia had a mind that shone brighter than the morning star. She craved knowledge and challenge that the simple labors of survival could never allow. In her dreams, she asked questions, played games, and unraveled puzzles. Park was a frequent companion in Lucia's dreams, sometimes playing the role of a partner in tackling mysteries, and others an opponent in rousing contests of wit. He was still the kind and sensitive soul that he was in the waking world, but in Lucia's dreams, he had a mind to match hers. To Lucia, the ghost brought stories and wisdom that she had collected from dalliances over her many centuries. They started as visions, drawing Lucia into ancient tales. These pleased her for a while, but Lucia's eyes were sharp. She found the ghost quickly and held her focus on her, identifying her as the most vibrant thing in a room of fading fancies. Each night, Lucia would locate the ghost, even in disguise, to pull her into comfortable places where she had a chance to ask questions and banter. It was not long before Lucia moved the ghost into the role of friend and teacher, 
The ghost taught her ancient dialects that once lived in Lostaloom, and the knowledge she had gained from the many tradesfolk she had seduced away from the Union's light. Lucia was an eager student, devouring every story and lesson with rapt focus. When she was not learning from lectures, she challenged the ghost to devious and delightful contests. The two played every game that they knew between them, and together devised novel challenges to occupy the other's fascination. After months of teaching and playing, the ghost came to bless her centuries, because they meant that she always had more to give Lucia. She found that Lucia did not just take. In return, she shared all she had learned in the many books that she read in her few idle waking hours. She also saw that Lucia took each of her lessons to heart, spending hours perfecting the crafts, skills, and tongues the ghost had taught her. Lucia worked diligently to have her waking self hold the cleverness that she had won in dreams. In Lucia's competitive spirit, the ghost found a fierce strength, cultivated from a tireless desire to grow. In her wit, she found a skill for observation born from a love for others. In the curiosity that drew their minds to countless hours of conversation, the ghost found a genuine desire to know her. The ghost carefully built her connections to both lovers before pulling them into embrace. This was the thing that had shattered so many loves before theirs. Creating a love more perfect than any they could know in life would poison their waking bond with bitter dissatisfaction. She pitied these two. She had come to know them well in dreams, and watching the hours they spent awake in the cottage. Their lives were difficult, and their bond held more beauty than any she had ever seen in her considerable years. However, she knew that the Union had sent them to mock her, or perhaps challenge her. She could not allow either gesture to go unanswered. As she had in the past, she presented her offers through temptation. Building dreams that resembled the waking world, and appearing in her true form so that a betrayal of their marital bond would be as authentic as possible. She allowed them to see shades of one another before having them turn towards her, necessarily, she thought, away from each other. To Park, she offered a dance that moved to kisses and tender passion. He stepped to her positions with familiar, jubilant grace. To Lucia, she offered new lessons that called for vulnerable obedience and offered bountiful rewards in return. Lucia applied herself to this new curriculum with her familiar, hungry inquisition. The ghost was surprised. The bond between Park and Lucia seemed so much brighter than any other she had touched. Yet, they accepted her embrace the moment it was offered. They did not need the volley of overtures that weaker couples required to give into desire. She reasoned that this must be the true hollow face of the union. Its greatest thralls undone by the simplest temptation... The union was nothing more than a pleasant mask for the rake to wear in order to lure unwary souls into heartsick suffering. 
Despite this conclusion, she did find a distinction in laying with Park and Lucia. They drew her into a fog of tenderness that pierced dreams. What began as the simple language of temptation and play at betrayal quickly became an exchange of all that she had laid to guide them to her arms. Night after night, her soul met theirs in passionate exchanges, which burned like the sovereign's fire. During waking hours, she watched her quarry for signs of weakness. She counted every impatient sigh and short spat sentence as an indication that her plan was working. That the mix of understanding and intimate affection between them was waning. They still laid together, still shared their little happinesses, but that wasn't uncommon. So many connections had languished for years before unraveling, and she had time. Her first real indication of victory came about a year into their life in the cottage. It was a crisp autumn night that flirted with a bite of early winter. Park and Lucia rolled into their home with a touch of the jovial spirit the ghost had set free in his dreams. Lucia was also a light, buzzing with drink and conversing with the guests the two had brought with them. A pair of young skyjacks, handsome if kissed roughly by the wind and sun. The ghost was admiring her dreamers when she noticed glances, followed by easing comforts. After a bottle infused with the peaches from her tree, these comforts turned to touch. Park and Lucia, the paragons of the Union strength, welcomed strangers into their marital bed. Her careful work had finally called them to stray. As their dizzy heads finally settled to dream, the ghost tasted their excitement through their embrace. In their deepest selves, they had found joy in others. The ghost felt closing victory in this. She still felt the thrum of the union at the core of her nightly exchanges, and it filled her with iris drive to grapple and sink her jaws further into its throat. She was a force of clutching, bussing, and joining that echoed in the voiceless cries of her dreaming lovers. Each night she gave more of herself and welcomed more of them. It was a labor, even for a being timeless and tireless as she. Months later, they took another tryst, and that was followed by another still. Many strangers moved through the walls of the cottage, some returning often enough to become familiar to her, with others just passing through. A few were even met individually by Park or Lucia, and there were even nights where she was met in dreams alone by just one of the pair, with the other betting in places unknown. With an assured victory on the horizon, the ghost felt a sting of regret. She knew the breaking of this bond would eventually mean that Park and Lucia would have to leave the cottage, that her nights in their embrace would come to an end. She was far past being the foolish girl who wept for love's great loss, but her time with them had come to be precious to her. If the Union had simply allowed her to live and die as any other soul seeking the light of love, 
none of this would have been necessary. She could have tied a knot and been laid to rest, satisfied with an average sort of happiness. Instead, she had to suffer centuries of resentment only to taste the intoxicating touch of the union while she undid its bonds. She tried to imagine it would all be worth the while if it meant rest and finding some gratitude in having tasted sweetness at all. She began to savor her nights touching them. There was still dancing, conversation, and embrace. But there were a few nights where she found herself being comforted by her companions, held against a sorrow they could not understand. The end came when the couple welcomed one final guest to their door. The woman appeared to be not much older than either Park or Lucia, but had the look of someone with many more years of wisdom. Her skin and hair were dark and lovely. Her eyes held depthless, verdant fathoms. She was dressed in white and green and gray. She met Park and Lucia in flawless step, moving with and between them in ways that plucked their strings. Her threads meshed with theirs as though they had laid with her for years. She must have been one of the lovers the two had met with away from the cottage. It was the only way the ghost could fathom anyone touching her dears with care that rivaled her own. The ghost could feel the soft hum of her presence pulling through the tangle of the bond. Until, in a jolt, it found her own thread. With sudden defensive ferocity, the ghost locked upon this visitor with new eyes and found what she had missed before. Beneath the dancing curls that fell over her neck was the unmistakable black of a tattoo in the shape of a lily. As she found it, her ghostly eyes met the stranger's fierce green. A lily. She had encountered one only once during her life. A pretty young man who cruelly assured her that she walked in the Union's light, that one day she would be blessed with a magnificent knot. She had spent countless days lamenting his, and by extension the Union's, lie, even if it was told with apparent sorrowful regret in his voice. Her cursed lumen had dispatched one of its wretched soldiers to strike at her. She lunged, but found herself caught in a crisscross of glowing crimson threads. Park and Lucia gasped in surprise and fear as she let out a howl. Spirit, your journey is at an end, and by my black, I swear I shall see it through. The lily's voice was grounded and painfully lovely. The ghost thrashed in the tangle as Park and Lucia retreated behind the lily in terrified disbelief. Do you know her? The lily called calmly to the couple behind her. The ghost felt sorrow as the two looked upon her for the first time with their waking eyes and did so with fear. She has been in this place for a long time. I suspect that she is the source of the stories you were told when you arrived. Her thread is bound to something under that board. Tear it up. Park offered a stumbling protest before the lily called out again. I am a black lily, Park, son of John Yu, husband of Lucia. I have knowledge and I have power, 
and if you desire the mercy in the union's light, you will do as I say. At that, Lucia urged him on. With a hammer he had been gifted from a lover, and the strength he had earned from months of labor, he pried up the board, and found, laid gently in the dirt, the ghost's cord, pristine as the day it was buried centuries ago. The ghost spat and twisted, held fast by the threads. Lucia, daughter of Mai, wife of Park, fetch that cord and the knife the drover gifted you for your wedding. Lucia stared in disbelief before the lily called again. Be quick about it. I do not wish to hold a wrathful spirit all night. The ghost lunged and fought as Lucia hurried to pick up the cord and find her knife. It was no use. This lily was in the full light of the bond between Park and Lucia. And despite what the ghost thought of as months of careful unraveling, she realized she had made it no weaker. With this power, the lily could hold her for more than twice the centuries she had already suffered. She looked into the eyes of the lily, and they felt as unshakable and distant as the union itself. To aid you, I will need honesty, open and true. You cannot hide your heart from me any more than you can hide it from the union itself. Do you understand? The couple responded with furtive nods. The lily allowed herself a solemn sigh before adopting an ancient and serious tone. Park Wong Costa Legrea, do you love your wife? Dazed and frightened, he called out, I do. Lucia Costa Legrea Wong, do you love your husband? With rattled curiosity, she responded, I do. The ghost began to weep. She was too exhausted from straining against the strings to utter the curses she had for the lily and the union that the end of her painful and overlong existence should come in a moment of such complete indignity and humiliation. She had allowed herself to find affection for these two. She had struck them nothing, and they had bound her and they looked toward her now with pity. Lucia Costa Legrea Wong, do you love this spirit? There was a frozen silence. Park looked to Lucia as she struggled for words. By the union's light, answer me, the lily called pulling against the strings woven throughout the cottage. I, I do... Lucia said with a self-conscious apology. And Park Wong Costa Legrea, do you love this spirit? I do as well, said Park, meeting his wife's apologetic gaze in turn. Then take the knife, each of you, and cut that cord into three equal lengths. The ghost let out a whimpering sob and readied herself for the bracing cool touch of the river at last. Her last thoughts before the knife finished its work were gratitudes for her bondage finally coming to an end and that she spent her final nights embracing her loves. She felt herself unmoored as Park and Lucia easily severed the cord that countless before them had failed to even mark. Yet, 
The strings held her fast. The lily continued, now with clear effort. Spirit, do you remember your name? The ghost let out a shrinking sob. No. And the lily sighed. You have haunted these walls longer than I have walked sphere. In your time, you have wrought much suffering in jealous anger. I have. The ghost responded with another sob, this one tinted with apology. You must know, the lily dropped into kinder tones. You all must know, that suffering was not a fraction of what you have endured. Let there be no soul upon Sphere who begrudges your actions in the light of that suffering. I will release you, but I also wish to offer what was once denied. Spirit, do you love these two? The spirit was struck. For the first time, she allowed herself to feel it and see it true. These many months spent with Park and Lucia, she had not been carefully unraveling their bond. She had been weaving her own to theirs. She had done it with all the hopeful passion she held in life. She had made a thing as red as roses, as soft as whispers, and as clever as grace. It twisted now before her in the tangle. Spirit, I bid you answer me, the lily called as the icy rush of the river poured shadow into the cottage, snuffing the lights in the room. It began to overwhelm the bright crimson of the many strings that held the ghost in place. The lily shouted and pulled the many strings that bound her to her fingers. Do you love these two? The spirit answered faintly, but her truth echoed in the dark waters of death. I do. Then buy my black! The lily poured her life and soul into her threads. Her fingers bled as they cut through to bone. By the light and strength of the union, against the dark of the river, against the edges of cutting stones! The lily drew her hands around the edges of the three pieces of the ghost's cord, pulling them into the air by the tangle of fading crimson threads. Each movement of her hands cut her deeper, pooling her blood into the floor and causing her skin to pale. Just as she began to waver, the cord was tied into a beautiful knot made from three equal pieces. I three wed. And with her final cry, pulling the knot taut, the darkness and cold of the raging river retreated. The lily stood trembling, covered in sweat and blood. You may kiss evermore. She collapsed as Park, Lucia, and the spirit rushed to catch her. From that day forth, the three lived in the cottage together, for as much as it can be said that a ghost does live. In their dreams, the three were united, sharing a life of boundless possibility. In the waking world, there were still the struggles of life and labor. Park and Lucia never led lives of wealth or comfort, but their trials and struggles were made far easier to bear for each other, and of course, the love of the spirit. 
Wed to the couple, the spirit was able to live all of the dreams that she had in her youth, to love and be loved. Although she still existed separately from the living world, under the light of a full moon, she was given form and body, to be witnessed, held, and cherished. And although there are many in the village who would deny the story, there were three children born to Park and Lucia, and the youngest of them had his second mother's brilliant red curls. And although no one spoke of how the lily was paid, Park and Lucia carried five scars on their fingers beneath their wedding bands, that each looked as though they had come from cuts that had gone through the flesh deep to the bone. When Park and Lucia passed in their old age, they were both buried under the peach tree, so that they could each rest and enter the river with their true loves beside them. Should you happen to be a soul in want of the union's light, about to weave and dye a brilliant cord, or sharpen the edge of a hopeful knife, remember that a cord can be cut to any length and tied with any number of ends. A true knot will hold strong and firm against pressure, without pulling tight to fray the ends. You will always do well to remember that, and that there are no kings. Take flight. Campaign Skyjacks is a one-shot network production. For more information, be sure to follow us on Twitter over at CampaignPod for updates about live shows and other events we might be doing. Welcome to Character Creation Cast, a show where we create and discuss characters, the best part of role-playing games, with guests using their favorite systems. I'm one of your hosts, Ryan Bolter. And I'm your other host, Amelia Antrim. Join us as we sit down with game designers, podcasters, and fans of games as we dive into learning about different RPGs through the lens of character creation. It's a combination of character building, player advice, game design insights, and even a little bit of fan fiction for a different game every month. We tackle a variety of new and old games, both well-known and indie-produced titles. We learn how creating characters can tell us a lot about the games themselves. Check us out today anywhere you can get podcasts or on the OneShot Podcast Network at OneShotPodcast.com. You can find more great gaming shows over at OneShotPodcast.com. Jonnet Kessler was played by Tyler Davis, who can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Tyler A. Dave. He also co-stars and consults on Showtime's Work in Progress. Gable was played by Liz Anderson, who can be found on Twitter at Liz Anderson underscore underscore underscore, or on her podcast, Paired. Travis Matigo was played by Johnny O'Mara, who can be found on Twitter at Johnny and Briefs, or on his podcasts, Bill Buds and Dilettante Ball. Captain Oromar Vale was played by Nathan Blades, who can be found on Twitter at PhantomArtsENT. You can also find them streaming on twitch.tv slash TheNeonCaster. I am James D'Amato, your host and game master. You can find me on Twitter at OneShotRPG or on my other podcast, OneShot. 
The original music featured in this podcast was written, composed, and performed by Arnie Parrott. You can find him on Twitter over at A-R-N-E-P-A-R-R-O-T-T. You can find more of his work at atptunes.com. This episode was edited by Casey Tony, who can be found on Twitter at Casey Pony, or on his podcast, Neo Scum. Our logo was designed by Fiona Shea, who can be found on Twitter at Fiona Pup. The World of Sphere was inspired in part by the music of the Decemberists, and Illimat, produced by Together Studios. This show uses a modified version of the Genesis role-playing system, designed by Sam Stewart and a team of talented professionals who were fired by the private equity firm owning Fantasy Flight Games. To the strangers who've ever been kind, and once for our friends near to rise. Twice to the dearest we're leaving behind, who know we can never deny the call of the sky.